The topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Radio Tony with Tony Lontis, author of Resilience, memoir of a broken little girl discovering a woman of strength and beauty. Available now on Amazon.com and in all good bookstores. Radio Tony. Your safe space for tough conversations, exposing secrets and talking about trauma and recovery. Radio Tony. Building Resilience. Talking trauma. Radio Tony. Live from the Gold Coast, Australia. Radio Tony. Difficult conversations and bringing hope to listeners. Live from the Gold Coast, Australia on W4WN. Good morning, everyone, and you're listening to Tony on Radio Tony this morning. It's very early in the morning in Germany, 1 a.m. in fact, but I have an amazing show planned for you today. We have Dr. Gary and Dala, who will both be talking on the subject of love. But before we get to our amazing guests today, just a quick word about my sponsors. You know that we've been talking to Kerry Hort Rowe, the brain behind brain thinking. Did you also know that besides being the brain behind brain thinking, she is a business motivator and she will take a look at your business and help you to reignite the passion that you first felt for your business. She brings a set of fresh eyes to look over and helps you improve your bottom line. She's also a profiler and performs the HBDI mapping of your brain, which tells you how you think and how you communicate with each other. And my listeners will know that we have been talking about my profile and again, we'll be talking about how that profile worked out when we come back to you in a couple of weeks. So Kerry is also a speaker. She's a strong, independent woman who's always been fundamental in her belief that life is what you make it. She knew that she would need to be tough to navigate life's waters. And through her story of turning her own tragedies into triumph, she's inspired many to be motivated to find their strength, and to achieve their own success. And just for a reminder, the HBDI test that I did is the Herman Brain Development uh, Instrument, and we'll be talking more about that very shortly. My second sponsor is Tracy Tully, and Tracy Tully is a speaker, mentor, author, and two times whistleblower on the educational system in Australia. She's been travelling Australia and internationally and spoken all over the world, and she'll show you how to find the sweet spot in everything you do. She's a motivation percolator, 
a wordsmith and distiller of fear. She creates influential speakers all over the world by helping people to unlock their voice, to lift their profile, prestige and profit. She teaches how to overcome her fear of public speaking through motivation and resilience, funding a lifestyle working anywhere in the world. And she, uh, you can book a session with Tracy on finding your sweet spot at www.tracytully.com. That's Tracy with no e, t r a c y t u w l y dot com. Um, and also, if you're wanting to contact Kerry about her brain thinking and brain tool, pop onto her website, which is www.brainthinking.com.au. Now, before I introduce you to my first amazing guest today, I just wanted to remind you to follow me on social media. So Radio Tony has its own Facebook page. So if you pop into the search bar, Radio Tony, you'll find me. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.tonylontis.com and there's lots of fun things on my site. You can find all about the books that I've read recently, all about today's guests in depth and their books. And uh, you'll be able to contact me if you want to. My email address is up there. And so thank you everyone for listening today. Our first guest is Dr. Gary Saylor. Now, Dr. Gary swore after his first divorce that his next marriage would be different. So when his second marriage crumbled after almost a decade for nearly the same reasons, he was devastated. Gary felt like an utter and complete failure. All he could see was hopelessness on the horizon. He was determined to find another way, and he was going to be that guy who bounced from, he was not going to be that guy who bounced from marriage to marriage, never really learning anything. So he found someone to mentor him and explored his past. He read lots of books, lots and lots of books. In fact, he dedicated himself to doing an in-depth research into all things love. Gary had in-depth conversations with all the people he loved. Most of all, he did the profound transformations that unlocked his heart and released his soul to the love that he's always imagined. So this morning, my wonderful listeners, welcome to Radio Tony, Dr. Gary. What a pleasure it is to have you here um, for our listeners today. And I'd like to begin by talking a bit about your journey to this point in time. Hello, Dr. Gary. Hello, Tony. How are you doing? I'm really good. Just a little tired, that's all. So, um, are you tired at one in the morning? I imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that in a lot of podcast men. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's live radio and my listeners would be missing me if I wasn't here. So um, I've already got comments from Violet. So, uh, Gary, just a bit of my guess, uh, Violet saying she's making us hang out to the end of our seats. 
Leo, I can't wait, <laughs> Mason, patience. So I did um, a wonderful uh, test on my brain to talk about how I think, which I'll tell the listeners a little bit about towards the end of the show. But I want to get on with our conversation. So, Gary, tell me about you. Where did it start? The second divorce or did it start at the first one? your research into love and how love works? Well, it actually started after the second divorce, but yes. it, the, the questions came all the way from childhood. I was uh-huh. growing up in an alcoholic family and noticed how many of my uncles and, and aunts could get mean to each other when they got drunk. And I remember even asking back then, why can't people love each other? Just a little seven-year-old, right? Yeah. Uh, went to college and I swore I would never have a divorce like everybody else. I And I talk about this in the book, but I, I expressly had two degrees. Uh, yeah. I had one in religion, you know, one in uh, psychology to make sure I never got that divorce. And at the end of my senior year, a professor gives me a personality test and says, oh, by the way, at the end of it, he says, oh, you have a 90% chance of having a divorce. Oh, so, no. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. So I literally suspended graduation and went a fifth year of college to get another degree in marriage and family to make sure that 90% got knocked off. Paranoid. So imagine what it was like when my first wife said, I want a divorce. It was like, I don't go. I don't get it. How did this happen? Then I do like seven and a half years of therapy, get remarried a second time, and it happens again after four years. And then it was after that that I began to realize that while therapy and all these degrees and all this studying had done me a lot of good, that it had not changed my core style of picking or choosing or relating, that there was something that was still the same. It had me managing my pain, but it hadn't transformed it. And after one painful breakup, I said, if they can't crack the code, I will. And I dedicated the rest of my life um, because I was tired of showing up as Mr. Wrong or Ms. Wrong, one or the other. And I said, "Um, this has got to stop and I'm going to find a way. And I really did think, I said, I worked too hard on all fronts. It shouldn't be this hard for people who sincerely want to find their way back to a lasting love. And uh, I decided to just to crack the code for all of us. Well, I'm so glad you did because Evie, one of our listeners, and I want to know what is true love? What is true love? True love, I mean, true love is an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Now, yes. I, yes, now I argue, you know, there's a lot of ways we could answer that, but I, I know that from... What I argue is that what tells the brain you're loved? And we find out from attachment theory, which is just the science of how uh, brains are wired to love and be loved, that you can tell how a baby feels securely loved or not by the time they're one or one and a half. Uh-huh. One and a half. Babies know they're loved or not. And they, they develop what's called a love style, a style of loving and picking and choosing and creating love that will track for the rest of their lives, barring intervention. They can be secure, which means they feel good in a relationship. They tend to pick good partners. They tend to create lasting marriages. 
or they can be avoidant, which means their greatest fear is ever being dependent on or depending on somebody. So they, they keep emotional distance. They don't commit. Or uh, they can be anxious, which means they're always afraid. When does love go away? They tend to text you, right? They, uh, after the text, they, where were you? Why didn't you text me back? Do you still love me? So whatever true love is, that baby at one, one and a half knows. And so what's going on then is, it's not logic now, is it? Because that's not a It's not identity. It's not story. It's not limiting beliefs, if you've heard that. It's four feelings. The yeah. only baby has an epidemic feeling. Now, this was a shock to me as a man. I was thinking, surely it would be more logical than this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the four feelings, what tell you you're truly loved? Have you been welcomed with joy? That's like when you tell the baby, uh, you know, so glad you're here. Oh, there you are, little sage or, you know, yes. right? are you worthy and nourished to reach out and have your knees out? You're worthy. It's okay to reach out and know you can receive an attuned response. Do you feel cherished and protected? Cherished and protected. You get to be a me that explores your world and come back to support and protect the group. That's their thought. Safety net and the hierarchy there. And are you empowered with choice and voice? True love. If you're feeling love, you're going to feel welcomed and worthy and cherished and empowered in that relationship. And if you are feeling anything else like unwelcomed, unworthy, uncherished, or disempowered, then you're not going to feel so love. So, Dr. Carey, um Harper wants to know how do we find out what we learned by that early age, because one and a half, not many of us are going to know what we did or didn't know at one and a half, and how can we track how we are now? It's a great question, Harper. What do you think, Dr. Gary? Okay. So there's a little test for you on this. Uh, I think back to your last relationship or the one you're currently in, or maybe the last few, okay? Um, and I went on a scale of one to ten. Did you feel how welcomed with joy did you feel in that relationship? On a scale of one to ten, how worthy and nourished did you feel in that relationship? And really check in with your body here. Feel it in your body, not just your head. So feel these in your body welcome or not. Feel in your body worthy or not. In your body, one to ten, did you feel cherished and protected? Did you feel that? And did you feel empowered with choice? If you did not, that was what you were missing early because the brain, if it feels unworthy, will find people. If these are reference feelings, Un once you feel unworthy, you tend, the brain says, well, that's all that I'm worthy of. So it tends to pick people that will make them feel unworthy. If it didn't get welcome, it will find people who will make them feel unwelcome. Undisempowered, it will find people. So whatever is showing up, Feeling is showing up most of the time in a repetitive way in your relationship. That's the early brain saying that's all I have the rights for. So even though, as Harper asks, we can't remember what we were at one, at one and a half, our adult relationships will reflect what we were uh, missing or what we did have at one and a half. That's amazing. It is. These, what I argue in my book is that these four feelings become reference feelings, worthy or unworthy. 
whatever you got is the reference doing. And the brain will use worthy or unworthy or power and this or this and power according to whatever it got. And it's like you they become rights or permission slips for future. The brain's wow. oh, did I did I survive worthy? Great, I'll have it again. It will do the same for unworthy though. And so whatever shows up in your relationship, whatever feeling that's always there seems to have been like Groundhog Day. Uh, that's what your brain is giving early, and then that becomes your permission slip later on as an adult. Gosh. So if, um, if you look at your current relationships, and let's use an unhappy relationship uh, as, as, a, as a point here, mm-hmm. and you feel unloved in that relationship, that's direct reflection of how you felt in that early stage of your life because that's when your brain patterning was uh, developed. That's my understanding. Uh, yes, that's true. Now, occasionally it can be later experience. I've seen that too. Sometimes yes. a horrible first marriage can do it to you too. <laughs> right? It can change those. But generally speaking, it's early on. It could be later between seven. It's early experience. And the brain just makes a list of what these these feelings are and says that and a part of our brain is always looking for survival. It says, what did I, what did I breathe through? Uh, yes. It's a reptile brain. And if you breathe through it, it says, well, that's survivable. Well, that's great if you live through world of welcome and worthy and church and empowered. But if you breathe through anything like not empowered or distant or, you know, not worthy, yeah. it will try to find that again too. This is why. People, you could be in a room with a thousand certified, you know, 999 certified sweethearts in the world. One person matches that and you'll be attracted to them. Uh-huh. Then, yes. And then your girlfriends are going, no, no, not that one. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually not something, uh, until we're aware of it. It's not a conscious thing until we're aware of it. So, um, I'll use myself an example. Um, I, largely felt unworthy in many, 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 many relationships before my current marriage. So that unworthiness has stemmed from something that happened in that early childhood. Um, And I can probably most likely put that around the issues I had with uh, my facial paralysis. Um, I would suggest, I'm not a doctor, but just putting it out there. Um, Dr. Gary, Oliver wants to know, how do we know what kind of love we learned? Again, it goes back to that childhood, doesn't it? It does. You know, usually childhood, I have seen a few words later experience, you know. Yeah. I had one client and, um, where uh, she had a very, a very secure childhood. I first thought it had to be earlier where she felt disempowered. Uh, but where it really came from, she was in an arranged marriage at 15. And parents thought they were really going to, um, you know, you know, provide for by giving her a guy who was 39. <gasps> but, you know, no 15 year old girl fantasizes about marrying the cute little 40 year old guy who's <laughs> balding like their father, right? Yeah. And now that did it. I mean, that gave her a profound missing life to create her own experience. Okay, so it can happen older that that uh, patterning or thinking starts to develop, to develop even up until 15. 
Yeah, well, yes. Any later experience does count. For the most part, for most of the clients that work for us, it's usually between zero and seven, you know, yes. early on. Uh, but occasionally you get someone uh, like that that shows up and, you know, and her great line to me in the first session is, I feel like a ghostwriter wrote my life. Um, yeah. And that came from later. And it was about giving her back that feeling of empowerment. Okay. Uh, yeah, now for me, I mean, I grew up with a borderline mother. I talk about that in the book too. And my yeah. mother was violent, right? So distance. I didn't have a whole lot of right to be cherished and protected because being violent, uh, you know, yeah, you didn't want to be in that kitchen with her. You didn't want to be a part of that week. So distance and being separate became my references for love. And what I didn't understand in my first marriage is I was still, my brain was still seeking safety by seeking distance. Just as I was in a room, playing by my toys by myself as a child, uh, although I, I loved her a great deal, I'd be there and studying my, I'd uh, be in another room studying, uh, yeah. you know, my PhD, and I didn't get why she said, I feel lonely. Uh-huh. Some part of my brain was going back to my old reference feeling. I had a feeling of distance and separation is what I was deserved versus cherished and protected, more me than we. And when I took those old security protocols, those old feelings, and my brain started reestablishing safety in that marriage, it was her worst nightmare. She felt lonely and disconnected. Now, everybody was telling me it was about skills, and what I found out is <laughs> if you can give people skills all day long, my college degrees did that, but if the feeling doesn't change, then we tend to give the feelings we have to our beloved, not so much the skills. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Missy wants to know, um, she goes, okay, so once we're past 18 and start to think on our own, what happens when we start to retrain our brains? Well, it's according to how you retrain your brain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of people go to seminars and things like that, right? And, and people give advice and they give better skills. And what I've found is that, you know, they'll tell you, you know, how to date, uh, you know, feelingization, doing visualization. And if all you're doing is working with your prefrontal cortex, you're not working with the back of your brain where in the limbic system where these feelings are. And these feelings tend to run the show. Uh, I've noticed working with couples, these feelings will bleed into the skills I teach them if I haven't changed the feelings. Like uh, the best example I have is uh, my sister and I had the same third grade teacher. Uh, my mother wasn't really great at uh, welcoming the joy because she truly was borderline personality disorder. Me, I took all, I said anything in the opposite direction of where I'm going, but my sister took after her. And my third grade teacher told me when I was 25 that when she was three years younger than me, that when she got her, she thought she was getting Gary the second, right? Oh. And, and what Mrs. Graham always did was she had lots of visitors and there'd be one person that would be the greeter. And the greeter would open the door and welcome them in. And Kim had that job that day. And my sister goes, well, well how do I greet them? Uh, and she goes, well, you open the door and you say, welcome in. So, you know, the time comes, knock on the door. Mrs. Graham looks at my sister. She walks up and uh, she opens the door and she goes, well, come in. <laughs> Same. She got the skill set, but she gave the feeling of unwelcome. <laughs> that she okay. Had. Okay. And I have watched 
when, at the beginning of working with couples, you teach them a new skill, um, but they if they feel unworthy, they will they will communicate and sneak in criticism so the other person feels unworthy, just like they did. Um, uh-huh. And so, in order to whatever you're doing, it's swapping out. If you're doing training, uh, you don't want to just working on skills or stories or visualizations. You have to get your body and brain to feel these four core feelings so you can feel loved and lovable and loving yeah. it. Yeah. You don't, and that, not everybody that out there does that, but it's really getting your brain to feel welcomed and worthy and cherished and empowered. Those people go out and get great partners. And they create great relationships that are lasting. And if it's not doing that level of work, it's really nice seminar, but it's not yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, Zap wants to know, how can we find out what was in early childhood and how can we overcome that feeling? Well, I think that uh, we've talked about uh, some of those things that will point to early childhood uh, issues. I would dare say that if you're in an unhappy relationship or you keep picking the same types of people to love, then those are your issues from that early childhood. Um, Dr. Gary, that's correct, isn't it? Yes. Like, for instance, I had a client last fall. Um, She had a profound sense from her childhood of feeling uh, unworthy and not cherished. She always had way more right to separate than what I would say to belong, more me than we. Uh, and she felt very unworthy. On the first session, she kept picking the same people over and over and made her feel unwelcome, uh, I mean, unworthy and not so, and, you know, they had never created a we with her. In the first session, she'd gone on Tinder or Bumble and said, Oh, I think I found Mr. Jackpot. And I thought, wow, wonder who this is. And according, according to the list, you know, she, he was six foot two and he was an attorney and he did, and he read Dossiesty and he even did Pilates. Uh-huh. Now, about five weeks later, she comes in and she goes, I can't believe this guy. <gasps> she goes, yeah, he likes Pilates. He likes checking out the women in Pilates. Uh-huh. She found a guy, even though it matched her look. You know, that would give her the old feeling of welcomed. I mean, of, of, of unworthy and not so cherished. So once we, we gave her back that feeling, the right to belong and a right to have her needs met and to feel worthy and cherished, she dumped that guy. And then, you know, several months later, she's got two men that are looking. She goes, one looks like Mr. Jackpot, except he's a doctor. Right. And instead of doing Pilates, he did like yoga. Right. The other guy was not as tall, not as good looking, but decent looking. He had a good job, you know, um, and showed up on the date and on a Hawaiian, Hawaiian uh, shirt instead of a three piece suit. Right. <laughs> and at the end, she says, you know, the one she goes, the, the, the Mr. Lottery guy is a good guy. But this other man makes me feel like a queen. I feel so welcomed and cherished by this man. She chose him. Why? Because she had different reference feelings. And then she finds a man who she's not fooled by a lid. She's not fooled by a visualization. She goes and her feelings become a guide. 
to helping find someone who truly makes her feel worthy and cherished. Now she feels love. That's the key. <clears throat> uh, that's really the key. Destroying those feelings. And there's all sorts of patterns I talk about in my book that come from each of these feelings uh, or these missing relationships. Uh, sorry, it, it's about being very clear with how you are feeling yourself. So it, it, it's about um, really thinking, do I feel cherished? Do I feel loved? Or is this uh, not what it seems? It's about getting comfortable with asking yourself those hard questions, isn't it, when you're seeking out true love? It is. If you're a single... This is your brain's original GPS for love. You know, online uh, apps and sites tend to, they work, they work with compatibility. And we know from the research that compatibility is, uh, it does not predict lasting. What predicts lasting is the quality of the friendship. And these, and, if, and the friendship is all about these four feelings. So if you're dating and you're on the fifth or sixth date, give it a little while. You know, I can't say you're going to feel these in the first and second. You've got to let them show up a little bit. Then you check in with yourself. Do I feel welcome, worthy, cherished, and empowered? If not, then can this, can you talk to them about it and will they work on it? And if that doesn't work, it's time to move on. They're not like you. They're never going to feel loved. If you're already a couple, this is your weekly check-in. If you really want to know how you're doing in a relationship or how you're feeling in a relationship, just have a check-in with each other. Honey? This week, as a husband, how did I do on one, you know, one to ten? And if she goes, oh, seven or eight, okay, so what feeling was it that was missing? Was it, did you not feel welcomed or worthy? Oh, I didn't feel so worthy because, you know, I made some questions and you didn't, and you didn't follow through and I just didn't feel like I could reach out. Oh, now I know what I can do. This, this is, whether you're single or, or you're in a relationship and you're coupled, these four feelings are your GPS. You check in with those, you'll be checking in with when you're going to feel fully loved. Yeah, yeah. So just for our listeners, can we repeat those four feelings again? Okay, so the gold standard for love, so to speak, is the, your brain's original comfort. Yeah. It's feeling welcomed with joy. Welcomed, yes. Worthy and nourished to reach out and have your needs met so you can give and take. Yeah. So it's important. Well, you're cherished and protected. You get to be a me, but not the marble mate. You know, you, you ignore an entrenched we. You get to be a me and an empowering we. Someone who says, who notices your dreams and your needs and has your back. Yes. Those things. And then empowered the choice. Can you speak your truth? Do they, do they allow, do they share influence with you? We know that 82% of the time that women file for divorce, it's because they didn't, the man did not share influence. Yeah, this is a huge thing. So you're always asking how welcome, worthy, cherished, and empowered do I feel? And whatever it is, sometimes I even ask couples at the beginning, so I, I always have a pretty good idea if they tell me one doesn't feel welcomed and empowered, the other doesn't feel cherished or uh, worthy, I have a pretty good idea of what skills I need, but what feelings, and what problems, and a pretty decent idea roundabout of what happened in their childhood or in earlier relationship. It's a roadmap. 
for fixing and creating and maintaining really good feeling well. Wow. Well, since we're talking about love, and you talk particularly about deserving, how everyone deserves long-lasting and deep love, why do you think that we all struggle with that so much? I, I tell you what, one of the things I'm noticing, and you know, culture plays a part in this too. Let us be very clear with that. Modern culture isn't exactly relationship friendly. I, I see an epidemic of unworthiness out there. So many people truly deep down inside don't feel worthy of love. And there's so much of it that you, there's, you can't say there were that many mothers and fathers who gave that feeling of, of unworthy. Uh, uh, it's, it's just bigger than what you would expect. Um, think about it. You go online and, uh, people have these long lists and you see all these long lists and you go, oh, Scott, do I, do I have all 65 of those compatibility things? Oh, gosh, is there something wrong with me? Or, you know, uh, we get ghosted. There's so much ghosting says, what am I, chopped liver? Or we, or people do endless texting. There's the divorce group. Um, or even on social media, uh, there's really something that's really kind of odd. I don't think it's good for relationships. Everybody puts out like they've got a perfect relationship. When in fact, I know for a fact, you know, few people do. And I think it raises the bar so much that nobody feels worthy. All these little things happening in modern culture that tend to make us think if we're just human, we're not worthy. We have to be super Mr. and Ms. self-actualized. And nobody ever says to a little child, you're never going to see a, a, a headline that says a one-year-old child needs to be perfect to feel loved. That's not going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. We love them as they are. We welcome them because, oh, there's a little pony, you know, so glad to see you. That's it. Yeah. So I, I think it's the epidemic of unworthiness that is stopping a lot of people and the fact that we live in cultures that um, tell us to value ourselves over uh, what I would say is the we. Uh, I make a big deal about the we in relationships and book. And so I, I agree. I think that social media is uh, equally a power for good and a power for bad. But when we seek, we're constantly bombarded with images and rhetoric that speaks about perfection. Uh, it makes average people uh, think that they are generally unworthy, but everyone, without a doubt, is worthy of deep and everlasting love, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And I just also remember that all, all parents that they love. They're absolutely love. Right, but the wonderful thing is, if any of these patterns are always showing up, when you're not really loved as a little one, your brain takes the best view available. That's it. It's the best view available, and sometimes it's not the great. But the good thing about our brains is they're flexible, and I've seen it in so many of my clients over the last ten, twelve years. So if you can find the exact flavor of safety. That brain was taken when it took worthy or empowered off of it. And you can help it feel safe with that. It will gladly take a better option. You know, 
you can always restore these. The brain, once it realizes it's been given a better option, will always take it. But it's working with safety. I mean, at one point in time, being close in a Wii was not very safe for me. But once I learned how to be safe with that, then it was great. I could create a Wii. Then my relationships take on a totally different one. So if you didn't get it early, you know, there is a place in all of us that still knows we're worthy. Yeah. Uh, it takes Ruby off uh, the menu and puts it in a little layaway plan so that later when you're not with your parents, you can take it back. And that's the beauty of the work uh, that I'm doing with my clients is giving their brains back all these feelings that the brain wants stored and put away in layaway to keep it safe from maybe unparent, you know, unloving parents or unloving uh, spouses or, or whoever it was. And the brain will take them back. It's your natural birthright. And some part of you still remembers that. You have a beautiful self that's just waiting to be restored. We love is a birthright. Mm -hmm. So you believe, Dr. Gary, that, and this is backed up by your uh, extensive research, that some of us, are, we've talked about the 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 pre-programming, but you absolutely believe that it's possible to change what we learnt as a young one, and your research backs this up, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Oh, there's neuroplasticity. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The brain. Yes. Uh, there's. Yeah. I'm going to get you to explain. It is all. Say again. I was going to get you to explain what neuroplasticity is for our listeners. Well, yeah, it's a little term from uh, neuroscience that showed up uh, basically the last 20, 25 years, is that we used to think that once you got into childhood, out, out of childhood, the brain was pretty much set for life, and that's where you were, right? But now we're finding out that the brain is malleable. It's like clay that never gets uh, in the kill. It, yes, it gets molded and formed, but it remains malleable. And so your brain is capable of creating new neural connections, infinitely so. And even though you have, you know, certain brain patterns and firing patterns that say, maybe I want to get angry all the time, or I'm always sad, or, you know, I can't reach out for my needs, or I can't speak up, those can be changed. And it really is changing the feelings underneath it. So, Whatever you're out there, whatever your pattern, you know is you're worthy of having it better, and you're and it's all adjustable. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So you also believe that um, we all have certain love styles. Um, can you talk to us about what is a love style, and how do we work out what our love style is? Okay, that's good. But there's four, but one is more for people who are, uh, it's called disorganized, and I leave that for the people who are working in mental health fields usually. Um, but the three that most people with what I call middle-class craziness <laughs> have are either secure or anxious or avoidant. Okay. Now, those are the three that, and you know, there's a continuum here, right? Um, and when you read a lot of attachment theory, they, get, they talk about these descriptions, and they're like labels. And it's all, people say, oh, my God, if I'm anxious or avoidant, I'm screwed. Well, no, these can be changed. 
And that's what my book is about. How do you restore it? The secure are comfortable depending on someone and being dependent upon somebody. They have a full right to feel they can reach out for their needs. They have a voice. And because they typically have pretty much all four of these reference feelings running in them, they pick people who are good partners about 85% of the time, and they're able to maintain calm, loving, lasting relationships because they're most comfortable in a relationship. And the key is they are comfortable depending on somebody and being dependent on right back. Yeah. Now, if now say in childhood or in an earlier relationship, um, you were not given a lot of congruent responses. You were basically told, oh, go over there and play with your toys, or you were left alone. Then we developed what's called we can divorce, uh, an avoidant uh, lifestyle. Now, this is a flight response. This is for someone who truly was mostly abandoned, sometimes abused, right? And for these people, their biggest fear, the message they got is, you're on your own. These babies tend to walk faster, I mean quicker, uh, sooner uh, than other babies because they know they're on their own. Uh, so depending on somebody or being dependent on is their worst nightmare. They did not get a lot of emotion coaching or emotional feedback, so they are very dismissive of one's feelings. You know, just get over it. Uh, you know, you're just being too, you know, you're just being too emotional is what uh, they'll say, things like that, you know. Uh, and they're typically, uh, they don't like commitment because they don't like being dependent on. So if you're one of those people where you think, gosh, you know, I feel, I don't feel really close in relationships and it's just amazing how soon I get over them. That's more an avoidant. Uh -huh. Now the anxious, uh, they have a fight response. They got what's called intermittent attention. They got some and then not. Got some, not. Got some, not. And some part says, I'm going to fight to lock this thing down. Uh, so they, so they amp it up. They have a fight response. They become anxious. They're preoccupied with their own pain and their, their biggest fear is when does love go away? And they're usually so anxious. Like, where were you last night? Why didn't you text me back in 10 minutes? You know, are you, do you still love me? These, they so amp it up that it's overwhelming to most people and they typically will have people they'll run people away and so they become self-fulfilling prophecy so you just think about what's my typical do i typically feel comfortable depending on someone and being dependent on? am i afraid of that then you're more avoidant and if you're always afraid love's going to go away uh you know you tend to be so more preoccupied with that um um, you know, that's where, uh, and I was at, where can you get all this? I discussed this in the first couple of chapters of my book, uh, and much more. We need to talk about your book. <laughs> yes. Yes. All that's in the book and all the rights and the feelings and the, in the adult patterns. I mean, I talk about every, pretty much every pattern that comes from a feeling like unwelcomed. You know, if you're not unwelcome, you tend to be in your head and not in your body. So you, you tend to have a hard time emotionally attuning. If you felt unworthy, you have a horrible time reaching out for your needs, or you're always taking, you know, finding takers, right? And, and yes, it is a lot of things to process. But the, the simple thing is just concentrate on one of those feelings and notice where it came from 
and then then make a commitment. How do I allow, you know, how do I find someone to help me work this through so I can feel that feeling again? Because whatever is missing, whatever it's welcomed or worthy or cherished or in part, you have a right to feel that. And so um, just breathe through it and just realize this is just the opening door for some part of your brain saying, I shined up for this program so that I can find my way back to life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the guys are wanting to w- talk about um, your book, Dr. Gary, so perhaps we might just uh, pop on over and talk about what uh, the name of your book and where we can get it. Okay, the book is called Safe to Love Again, How to Release the Pain of Past Relationships and Create the Love You Deserve, and it's on Amazon. You can get it in Kindle, uh, and um, no, it's not long. It's an inner study. It's a, it's a very practical book. I wrote it for normal people. It's not technical. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's got some beautiful client stories. The feedback I've gotten uh, when people email me, they go, oh, I'm like Gwen, and, and I really enjoyed that story. Or I'm like Sabrina, or I'm like, you know, I'm like Paul. Um, and there's a lot of heartwarming stories. And the most, uh, the biggest piece of feedback I've gotten from readers is it's eye-opening and it restores hope. And they just, and some people have even said it's changed their lives. Um, and it helps them to understand, oh, this is why my marriage or my dating life is the way it is. And, and this is what we can truly do to change it. So it's on Amazon, right? And I'm typing it up into the chat box as we speak. Yeah, and if Emory, if you're not sure what love is, yes, you'll have a way better feeling of what <laughs> love is after you've read the book. It's a very well-researched, comprehensive book written in a style that you easily understand the concepts that Dr. Gary talks about, and it will really help you. Um, I'm sure you'd agree, Dr. Gary. Yes, it is. I, I imagined, uh, with the, throughout writing, it took me like a year to write it. <clears throat> I imagined just my readers having coffee with me at Starbucks and we're just having a beautiful conversation about life. Yeah. That's yeah. description. That's yeah. how it should be. <clears throat> coffee house talk about love and, but back by a little science and, and years of working with real people and the stories are, are heartwarming. And I also tell my own story in there. So it's, and with little exercises here that can help you get started along the way. And the book has those little exercises that will help you understand where you are and how to move forward. Am I correct in saying that? That is true. And when you buy the book, it, there's also a reference to a, a website. Um, and uh, that uh, my on my website that where you can get some other uh, little helpful. I, I think it's like four little fifteen minute meditations that help uh, you begin the process of change. So I tried to make it an extremely uh, 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 experiential thing. There's no discount code. It's it's only nineteen ninety five. Um, so, but it's a it's a a small price for. Um, Getting your brain back aligned with love. Uh, it's as much as experience as I could put into a book. Uh, and it's 
well-researched. So you spent 15, 20 years researching these, these ideas um, about love, haven't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, go, it really goes back uh, longer than that, but I've spent the last 12 years really on this one. What is it that changes a, a love style? And for me, a love style is all about, in my back of my mind was, you know, I have some friends have been 30, 40 years, and I wanted to know what allowed their brains to, to create lasting marriages like that and what I, and what would allow me to reclaim that. So anybody, and to really, it's just reclaiming the feelings. That's what I do with my clients. I help their brains feel comfortable again, again, feeling deserving and worthy, uh, welcomed and powerful. And when these people have those feelings instead of the old ones, they naturally do better. And it's beautiful for couples, Tony. Um, you know, most of the time, couples, I call them dueling missing feelings, right? If, 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 like one couple, she didn't feel ever cherished. She always had a right to, uh, to not belong. And she wanted to feel cherished so much. And she, after two divorces, she finds somebody she knew in high school and they, they're engaged. He had just gotten out of a 26-year marriage, and his big missing feeling was in poverty. What is that? It came from childhood, but in 26 years of marriage, he never once initiated sex. That's pretty disempowered for a guy, right? So, yes, so what comes of it, the day comes when the ex-wife and children say, we don't want to include her for the holidays. What's this give her? That old feeling, I'm separate, I'm not, I can't belong. And when she doesn't feel cherished and belong, she comes after him and totally criticizes him. And now he feels disempowered because he was just, and he made that choice because he said, I'm trying to make everybody feel right. So when we gave him back a feeling of empowered, he could stand up to his family and say, this is the woman I love. I'm going to include her, deal, you know, deal with it, so to speak. And when she felt included, then she just, then she felt cherished, and when she felt cherished, she empowered him. What's that look like? He loses uh, a job, and she finds one for him, <laughs> yeah. right? Now, then they start spiraling up, and from engagement, they 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 now got a successful marriage. But those so couples always contract for the very missing feeling that the partner is giving them, and the key is to help couples to realize it's to make the pattern the problem and not the partner. That's my first group of couples. Then they become partners and a we against the pattern instead of each other. And if we can restore those feelings so they can give them to each other, you know, then most of the time, about 85, 90% of the chance, their love can last. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, Dr. Gary, when we talk about these uh, childhood uh, issues, I guess you could call them, you there's no blame in what you say. That your aim is not to blame parents for uh, something that happened. It's just more that you're aware of this happened in my early life, life, so it might impact on the way that I love as an adult. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Everybody got it naturally, including your parents. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I know. Remember, you know, when I was a child wondering why I was being thrown against walls, not so understandable. But knowing now as an adult that my mother came from an abusive background, while it doesn't excuse the behavior, 
she lived in an age where these sorts of helpful things that transform were not available. She came from that and she did as best she could. In fact, I realized that what was left of my mother's sanity consciously did things to drive me away because what was left of the same part of my mother, it was the only way she could protect her, protect her son, is to drive him away. That was all that she was capable of. That was all the love she was. And I, and, and once I did that, I made that realization. I realized in her own limited way, she came by it naturally, and she loved me as best she could. It took the victim out of, out of things from my own. Yeah. There's no, I don't, we don't make parents wrong. We simply make them understandable. Yeah. And we give their pain back to them so that we don't have to carry it. Whatever your pain was that you're carrying on behalf of your parents, it's important to know it was never your business. It was their business. Yeah, yeah that's right. That, that's quite a wonderful statement um, about um, not blaming your parents. They did the best job that they knew how to do. Yes, exactly. A victim doesn't do anything. If you have a victim story, the function of memory and stories is to tell your brain what to expect. And the more you tell a story like a victim, the more you're telling your brain to expect more victim-like experiences. The real key, another key thing, is once you restore the feelings and you give some new skill sets to couples, the stories, the way you tell the story has to change. If you still tell it like a disempowered victim, that will not help you to attract an empowering relationship. Um, my story I tell these days is very different and the 17-year-old would have told it. <laughs> yes, yes. So we've talked a fair bit this morning about dis what dysfunctional love looks like. Can you paint a picture for our listeners about what real, enduring love looks like in our lives? Oh, yeah. I thank you. That's a beautiful question, Tony. A beautiful relationship is and you know what I, I not everybody's looking for soulmate but I, I think the contract uh, for soulmates and I think everybody to the extent they can should be um, uh, did I bring out the best in my partner today and the thing that's really important it's new in my book I talk about not only the rights of the individuals but the rights of the we all great relationships have a beautiful, wonderful we that you give it a right to exist in. And you're constantly looking at the relationship. What does it need? What does the we? And there is this sense of camaraderie where they are. It's not two me's fighting for their own uh, things. It's they're looking at how can we empower each other so that we both feel empowered ourselves. There is an empowering, beautiful nimbus of we-ness and connection. And they are truly stepping into the mind of the other to understand them on their own terms. Yeah. Uh, and when you got two people who can truly step into the mind of each other to understand them so that their enduring vulnerabilities become endearing vulnerabilities. Oh, there's that little four-year-old that wants to disconnect. You know, I wonder how I can, I can uh, help him feel more welcomed. Oh, there's that little girl. Uh, in my wife that, that never felt, you know, empowered. I wonder what I, you know, what I can do to make sure she feels she has a voice, right? 
those are the sort of things that beautiful love does. Um, it's a we, it's, it's deep intimacy, um, and it's truly getting beyond the blame game so that you can understand each other in an endearing way, not in an enduring way. And it's also, as we mentioned earlier in the program, that deep friendship, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's, the research for couples is very clear. It's the quality of the marital friendship that's everything. I personally think these four feelings define it just better than just friendship. But 70% of all men and women say they want the same thing. There's no difference here between the sexes, although there are in other ways. 70% say we want a, a, a best friend. <clears throat> and that that's someone who turns toward us versus turning against us or turning away from us. When you make a bid, they, they respond well. They make love maps where they're really noticing, you know, what makes us tick, what's our preferences, what our likes are, you know. And they have and they practice fondness and admiration. Yeah. Good couples have at least a five to one ratio of positive things to negative. And that's during conflict. It, it can go up to 20 to 1. So, and then there's a, a fondness and appreciation. Those four things. Now, I personally think that if you have welcomed, worthy, cherished, and empowered, you're going to feel positive towards each other. You're going to feel connected. And the big mistake that some rookie uh, coaches or therapists make is when a couple comes in, they try to focus on the problem and the conflict when the conflict is there because of the 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 friendship is in the Johnny Fletcher, so to speak, you know. So if you work, so it's a, we restore the feelings and some of the skill sets so that the friendship is there. Then you can easily solve whatever the conflict is. But it's about having a, a beautiful friendship uh, that has turned sexual. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, as Julie Gottman, uh, one of the researchers uh, in couples, says, you know, uh, marital love is is friendship with nudity, <laughs> yeah. and, and there's something beautiful about that simplicity. Well, Dr. Gary, we are out of time this morning. Um, what a pleasure it's been to have you on Radio Tony uh, talking about all things love. Um, I know that our listeners have enjoyed our conversation this morning. So thank you so much. Um, we're going to go to a short break. And when we come back, I'll be talking with the lovely Dala. Thanks, Dr. Gary. Thank you, Tony. Keeping the conversation going on the suppressed social and moral issues, this is Radio Tony on W4WN. Join Tony Londis, author of Resilience, Memoir of a Broken Little Girl, discovering a woman of strength and beauty on the Women for Women Network. Radio Tony uncovers and exposes the social and moral issues of our time, bringing social consciousness to the airwaves. You're not alone with secrets. Let's talk trauma and resilience. Radio Tony is your safe space for these tough conversations. Radio Tony with Tony Lontis. Live from the Gold Coast, Australia. Thursday evenings from 7pm Eastern Standard Time on W4WN. Radio Tony on W4WN. Your safe space for tough conversations. And welcome back listeners. You're listening to Tony on Radio Tony this morning. And our second guest is... Dala Collinette, who is a speaker, speaker, a relationship guru, and author of Who's Writing Your Life Story. 
Dala specializes in helping women create a clear, concise vision for their future and their lives. She has uh, driven to help. She is driven to help women recognize how to grow their faith, stand confidently in Christ's power, and find their happily ever after. Dala has completed domestic violence training and serves as a DART, which is short for Domestic Abuse Response Team for Crossroads Safe House in Fort Collins. After enduring a life of abuse and neglect, Dala is now fueling her mission to not only help women discover God's love for them, but to truly know their purpose and to create the life that they wish to live. After overcoming 30 years of domestic violence and abuse in three marriages that ended in divorce, Dala is now has a thriving marriage. Uh, she's from Fort Collins in Colorado, um, and it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Dala to Radio Tony today. Hello, Dala. Hello, Dala. I'll just let Dala know to unmute her microphone. There we go. Are you there? Here we go. Good morning. Oh, good morning. (laughs) How are you? I am terrific. I'm so honored to be on your program today. So happy to have you here today. I've just been telling our listeners about um, your surviving of uh, domestic abuse um, and... I'd really like to start with how those unhappy relationships impacted on you, Dala. Abusive relationships uh, impact every part of us. You know, anything that's negative in our life affects our minds, our hearts, our spirits, and every aspect of our relationships in life. It's hard to... um, think of anything positive when you're kind of in those situations. Um, and, and so that's difficult, you know. It's difficult when you're in those situations, and that's kind of where I found myself. I was uh, listening to your prior show and uh, with Dr. Gary, and there's a lot of things that are, you know, similar that, that go into this um, for me as well yeah. as, as far as what love was and what I understood love to be. Uh, tagging on from Dr. Gary, was there, do you think, in your life, a reason that you were in those domestic violence relationships? I have come to understand in my life, um, I am, I just turned 55, or I will be turning 55 in a few days, uh, so this has been a lot of, well, thank you. It has been 50 years in my life of really looking at things and going, okay, what did go, you know, what happened, what has gone wrong, and about, I've, I've been through three domestic uh, marriages that ended in divorce, and about halfway through my third one, I kept thinking, what in the world am I getting wrong? And I was, I was going, okay, God, I'm a Christian, they're a Christian, what, what, you know, what is the deal here? And it was in that moment, kind of, where things started falling in place, and I started researching, okay, I've researched what other people say love is. I've researched what the world says. I've researched what I've said. 
and it's ended in me just trading up one relationship for another that isn't as bad. And so I started researching what Christ love is, and I started realizing that people are are much like computers in the sense that we can only do what we know how to do. And until we learn something new and understand it and and really get that um, change in our brain and our emotions and really know what that difference is, and then we put it into action, then we get something different. And that's what I started following, um, and that has just changed everything. Because before, I realized that I made those decisions because I was operating out of a broken love design that had been formed from my early years all the way through, you know, all the way through my life, basically. You know, and um, one of the things that I realized is we... Each each person in a relationship, you only have the relationship, but each person comes with those broken love designs. And for example, if you grow up in a family where women are disrespected, but maybe the dad apologizes, you think, oh, well, as long as he apologizes, that's okay. Uh-huh. And then you go, you know, maybe your spouse grows up in, in a relationship where the mom is overbearing or something like that. And he's like, well, I'm not having that in my marriage. So he comes with that formed that love is not that. And he's, he's the extreme the other way. So he's very controlling. So you each come together and it just becomes this tug of war, you know, of who's going to win, which kind of broken love design you're going to use. And that's what I started seeing was this struggle. And then I thought, okay, but if I look at what Christ's love design is, and that's what I focus on is his, which is supposed, you know, which is perfect. That's the only perfect love I've ever known and seen on this, you know, in, in my life and, and experienced it. Then the struggle's no more between me and my spouse. I'm starting to grow to what he wants me to grow. And if each of the spouses does that, then you just grow together, you know, under Christ rather than trying to struggle between each other. Okay. So how can you tell um, a healthy true love from an unhealthy love if all you've ever known is the unhealthy love? It's going to take a commitment to learn something new. So for me, it was, okay, what does healthy love look like? Looks like and it's got to be bigger than yourself, for sure. You know, it can't be so focused on you. The world says it's, the world is really motivated when they talk about love with emotions totally. And then it's a lot of it's so self-gratifying. It's self-serving. Um, sometimes they use love as, as a manipulation commodity, those kinds of things. So it's easy to get confused about what is really love and what is not. So I came back to, okay, what does love really look like that is, is true and gentle? And it actually comes from a verse in Galatians um, 5, 22 through 23 in the Bible. And it's basically the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And these are what Jesus lived, and this is what's implanted in us. And they are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. And when I look at these and I say, if everyone acted from these, or if this is what you accepted from people, that's what 
the essence of love looks like. It's not just a word. There's just so many facets to it that are about attitude, about behaviors, about actions, about words. It's it's the whole essence of it. Well, just can you repeat, repeat those wonderful words? Yes, I'd be happy to. So the fruits of the Spirit, there are nine of these, and they are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. So that's really the key right there, isn't it? That's a key with the um, first and second commandments, which are, you know, to love God first, which is you've got to be out of yourself and quit putting yourself first all the time. But the second one is to love others as you love yourself. And for me, this was a big struggle. Um, Growing up with a lot of trauma, a lot of abandonment, and feeling love-starved myself, I you know, just long so much to feel loved. And so I would always put other people above me. And that put myself in a position, again, of that unworthiness and of of feeling unworthy. And it wasn't until I stopped trying to make myself worthy and said, okay, it doesn't matter what I say. What does God say I am? And he says, I'm a beautiful masterpiece. He says that I am loved dearly and treasured, you know. And even Jesus proved that because he died for me. And I don't know anybody else that does that. And if I base my worth on what they did for me and that God created me in his love and gave me the breath of life, then I am so worthy to be just as equal as everyone else And the greatest thing about that second commandment is, in the Bible, when he writes it, it's all in one sentence. So it doesn't say love others, period, and then as you love yourself, it's equal on the same line. And that really, when I really got that in my heart and my soul and realized that, that's what really changed my worth and said, now wait a minute, I'm doing this upside down. How can we avoid making unhealthy love choices? I think for me, one of the biggest things that when I started looking at love is you need to be aware of yourself. And as I started looking at myself and what made my broken love design, one of the things I looked at was fantasies. You know, how did I create those in my life? That the little girl happily ever after thing, you know, <laughs> that many of us go through. Um, but there was also faith fantasies of if I married a Christian man, then surely that would be okay. You know, that I would have a great marriage. And you don't think about faith fantasies, but then, you know, then you think about, um, you know, so I just created all these things in my head. And I also had to look at my brokenness in the sense of, I believe that we are really drawn with uh, and, and driven with five basic core needs, which are to um, feel safe, to feel loved, to feel valued, to feel like we belong, and that we have a purpose. And when those have really big voids in them, then 
we try to fill them ourselves or we try to put people in our lives that fill them for us. And so, for example, for me, that feeling loved, I was feeling so love-starved that, um, you know, I, I just craved any kind of love. And then what happens, I think, in our lives, too, is for me, I was uh, date-raped at the age of 15. And it was a very horrific experience. However, um, when I walked home from that experience and my dad took me in the back room and basically he said, you know, what did you do to cause this? And I remember looking, I'm 15 years old and I'm looking up at him going, you know, this is my dad. And I thought, you know, I was going to have somebody help me and save me and take care of me. And he's blaming me for what, you know, for being raped. And he also told me that he didn't know how I would ever have good love after being used. And that was horrible. That shattered, at 15 years old, that shattered anything that I would ever think I would be worthy of any kind of love. So if I'm already love-starved, and then now I'm really told that by my dad, that really sets my mind and soul up for, I'd be lucky to have anything, and, and if anybody you know, chooses to give me anything, then I'm going to take it because, you know, I'm going to be lucky if I get anything. And so it really set my mind and my heart and my soul up for um, being a victim of domestic abuse. And so at 18, I married my first abusive husband. And you see how that, you know, it does follow this cord of what happens to you in the past does have an impact on you. However, I can say with all the confidence in the world that what has happened to you in the past does not dictate what can happen to you in the future. Yeah. All I can do is, uh, my father's been gone for quite a while, and all I can do is, is, is kind of presume what was going on. And I, too, believe that parents do the best they can with what skills they have. My father... Uh, had lots of wounds when he was a child, um, lots of bad wounds, and he didn't, how do I say this, he didn't learn how to cope with things well, he didn't learn how to handle things well, and his way was to push it away. And that was his way to push it away and not to deal with it and not to, you know, be involved in it. It wasn't right. Um, it hurt me greatly. It changed the course of my life for a lot of years, and I think that's definitely one of the reasons why I kept making those choices. However, um, you know, my it doesn't help me to uh, be mad or to be angry at my dad for that. You know, I've forgiven him and said, you know, he did the best he can. I think in his later years he was very regretful and very sorry for that, and he did apologize. But, you know, the damage was done, and I've forgiven him and gone on because hanging on to that doesn't help me either. But what I can say is that also gave me the honor and privilege to be able to connect to women who have also had been hurt deeply by their fathers. And that's a huge part of why some women end up in abusive relationships because of that um, brokenness with their dad. You know, and how they see their dad, how they see authority. It also affects how we see God, you know. And for years, that kind of, I could understand that Jesus loved me, but 
there was a big gap between what I thought about God and felt about God and what I thought about Jesus. And as I've healed through my dad's, you know, my dad saying that, and as I've healed as a woman and understanding why I chose the choices I did through the brokenness, through the fantasies, through the um, just unknowing of what abuse was, you know, that, that big combination is really what got me in that place. But my forgiveness for my dad really has set me free for both my parents. You know, they did the best they could, but they were sick and hurting too. The other thing is that it's quite common for people to still blame the woman, girl, or child for the abuse that happens to them. That's yeah. quite common for people, unfortunately, to believe that the victim somehow caused the bad thing that happened to them. And we should all know very clearly now that never, ever, ever is it the victim's fault. Right. Never, ever, ever is it. And we also need to understand that with abuse, abuse is a choice. It's a choice of behavior. And that's what we need to understand. It is not a sickness or a condition that you get. It is a training that you have have gotten as you've grown up and subconsciously maybe not really realized it. But again, that broken love design. In that broken love design, what have you come to accept as normal in your life that really is abusive? We talk a lot about bullying, which is totally verbal abuse. It's it's um, psychological abuse. It's emotional abuse. It's abuse, period. So there's no difference. In the world, we think, you know, being mean to people or saying mean things is just, oh, we're just teasing or we're calling them out. It's really not. And as long as we keep normalizing any kind of abuse and not knowing what those signs really are, the more we just keep, you know, breaking that um, design of love and definition of true love, what that really is. And that's my whole message um, as I've been been working and putting all this together um, is is just creating a pathway for women to start looking at, okay, what in my past has created this broken love design and really what is mine? I don't even know where to begin. And once you know what that is, then it's like, okay, now what do I need to do to start working towards having my love for myself and for others be that joy, that kindness, that goodness, that gentleness, you know, all those fruits of the Spirit because they're in me. And so that's when we learn to work with Jesus and just say, okay, I didn't learn that as a kid, but if you can show me, and he will. And it's just an amazing, amazing walk as you start understanding the path you need to take. Dalla Gal wants to know, how did the rape affect your feelings about God? Well, you know, yeah, it's a great question because we all do this. God, why did this happen? God, you know, and I said the same things at 15. Um, I said the same things. You know, it's like, okay, if I'm, you know, if I love you and all of this, then, then, then how can that happen? And 
once my dad said that to me, I remember going up to my room and I just remember, you know, it's summer, so it's hot. We didn't have air conditioning at this time. But I remember getting in my footy pajamas and zipping myself up and going to bed. And I don't remember the next few days at all. But I remember such a dark, dark, dark place that I went to. And my mom had suffered with uh, mental illness her whole entire life. And there would be times that she would just completely check out. And I had always felt, and that's what she said, she didn't like the dark place that she went to. And I, you know, I, I understood what it meant now. And it was just like I could feel myself getting sucked down. And the feeling was so scary. And so, and I remember just screaming out saying, you know, I'm mad at you, God. I don't understand. You've got to help me understand. And in that moment, I had a dream. And in that dream, I could see the boy who raped me, and he was actually holding on to the hand of the devil, as weird as this sounds. And I could see myself laying on the ground, and Jesus was holding me. And the next thing I know is I'm sitting in his in his lap and he's holding me and he's just telling me that this world is broken and not always can we you know do we stop bad things that happen because people have choices he made the choice to hurt you he made the choice to do something evil and bad and we can stop it sometimes sometimes we don't but no matter what happens I always have you and then I saw a flash of the picture of the cross. And, and I remember waking up and going, wow, okay, so bad things happened to him down here too. You know, he was crucified. He, he had to endure all of that so that we could be saved and have that opportunity and that we could go to heaven with him. And sometimes at that point, I didn't understand, you know, what had happened and all of these things. But as I look back at my life now, Gail, I realize that I wouldn't wish my life on anybody, all these, you know, these, these marriages and the stuff that I have learned and the trauma and drama that I've gone through. But I also realize each and every one of those were allowed in my life because God knew I could, could handle it and deal with it with him. But it also opens up this opportunity for me to talk with other women who are struggling still, who are struggling to to see that they are loved, that they matter, that they fit in, that there's a purpose for them, that that it isn't just I'm a victim of things that happen. I do have a purpose. Yeah, yeah. And that's the key to your book, isn't it, Dara, about finding that purpose that everyone has. Yes, it it is. Uh, my first book was that way. Uh, right, uh, who's writing your life story? Um, all of the stuff that I'm talking about now about your uh, your broken love design and the fantasies and you know how you can work on yourself through this and understanding what Christ's love is and and even in Christ's perfect love is safe boundaries. They are responsibility and freedom and all of these things. So it really walks you through this this whole cycle of getting out of that broken love and living in his perfect love. And um, that will be in a book that's going to be released in February called Quest for Exceptional Love, Transforming Your um, Life and Relationships Through Christ's Design. Okay, and that's coming out in February? That's coming out in February, yes. Okay. So yeah. 
before I um, put up the details of, of Dara's book, I just want to go back into, um, I want to know if you can avoid being deceived uh, into an abusive relationship. Is there some way that you can point women so that they, and men too, that they don't get into an abusive relationship? Do you think there's some key points that you will notice beforehand? Absolutely. One, I would say write those nine words down <laughs> that I did, the fruits of the spirit. Okay? That's what you're looking for. And for me, one of the biggest signs is... Um, when you first meet someone, they're going to be, they're going to compliment you. And this is, this is the deal with abusers. Their whole goal is all about control, control and power. Their lives have been, um, you know, hurtful or whatever they are. So they want to control everything. And that's their goal. So they're going to use every means possible. They know how to do this. They've done it for years and they'll keep doing it as long as it keeps working. So they first start out and they give you lots of compliments. They, you know, open the door for you. They do all this other stuff. Enjoy that wonderful time, but give your relationship time and go out to different places in different circumstances and watch them. When the compliments start turning into disrespectful comments, when they discount your feelings for, you know, saying something, that's really important. You know, when they tell you, oh, don't be so touchy, that's a red flag. And then when those compliments also turn into demands, you know, of demanding you spend time with them or demanding you, you know, dress a certain way or do something. So watch those compliments that they don't turn into um, those three things because that's a red flag. I also know... One of the second ones, too, is when relationships move very, very fast. So when you get with someone and they say, I just can't live without you. I want to spend every moment of the day with you. And and we have to be careful because if we're on that, that place where I was of feeling love-starved, that's heaven to you. You know, you're just thinking, wow, this person really, really wants me. And, you know, how lucky I am. And that's why you have to know yourself. Then the other one is, uh, the last one I would say is, if you start making uh, excuses for someone or rationales to yourself or someone else for what they've said or what they've done in a, a, you know, in a public setting or in a private setting or you know, however it is, but if you have to start making excuses, you need to stop and ask yourself, wait a minute, there is no excuse for this. There is something really wrong in the relationship. But I think the first absolute sign that we can do is be aware of yourself, um, your brokenness, and the signs and types of abuse. We are not taught this as girls. We are not taught this in church, which I'm hopefully trying to um, get a program together to definitely start changing this around. But we have got to get the word out as to what's respectful and right and what is not. Thank you so much, Bella. We just are not taught. You and I are of the same age and uh, no one talked about these things. No one talked mm-hmm. about what a loving relationship looks like. No one told you those pointers and keys that will alert you to this is not right. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, I absolutely believe it. Particularly with men who are going to be abusive, it starts with the subtle uh, things in the relationship. The, oh, you don't need to do that, or you don't need to see that person, or you need to spend this time. Like it's that controlling, just tiny little things that you will know about at the time that they happen. But as Darla said before, many of us are love-starved and we're so desperate for that love that we want in our life that we will downplay those comments when in fact we should listen to our intuition and listen to those red flags. They will stop us from getting hurt. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's the big thing. When you don't know yourself, your brokenness, uh, you know, what you need to work on with Christ, you're just so vulnerable, so vulnerable to be sucked into those things. And that's the problem is when you've got controlling people, they know exactly what to look for. Vulnerability radar is what Yes, I mean. they do. Yeah. And I pick you out and find you. So right. You, if you're vulnerable, i.e. if you've got any trauma in your life, if you've been through any traumatic situ- situations or life experiences, you need to be doubly careful of yourself mm-hmm. and your relationships. Would you agree, Dara? Absolutely. And I would also have a team of people that you love, both men and women, you know, or couples, that can help you as you get into a relationship. Um, I am so, so blessed with my husband now, and that is just such an amazing story. God orchestrated uh, all on its own. Tell us about your husband now and how you met. Okay, so here's the good parts that God does. You know, the redemption, I call him. Um, I was not wanting to get married ever again. You know, uh, it had just been way, way, way hard. And uh, But I had this wonderful group of women, and five women, and they were all married. And after going through all that I'd been through, um, they were very protective of me. And uh, I had desired so many years to go to Italy. That was my dream vacation, absolute dream. So I, um, I had my dad's condo after he passed away and it sold. And I said, Dad, you're taking me to Italy. You're going to give me a really good memory. <laughs> so I bought my trip to Italy and I was going to join a group in Italy. Uh, a Globus group there, but I went by myself. And so my girlfriends, we had been talking and stuff, and and they had asked me, they said, would you ever get married again? I said, oh, mercy, no. (laughs) I said, you know, I I think he would all, but he would have to walk on water like Jesus, I think. And they looked at me and they said, we want you to write a list. And I said, but I don't want to write a list. I don't want to get married again. They said, we want you to write a list. And I said, okay, I'll just do it. So I sat down and I wrote an impossible man list. And mind you, I'm 50 years old. So I'm thinking, okay, I am safe because this list is going to be so hard. (laughs) No guy's ever going to fit it. (laughs) And, you know, on my list, I did have, I had uh, no prior drug use, no prior um, alcohol use because those were big things and no prior porn, you know, all of this 
you know, stuff. And, and with his family, you know, he had to treat his mom well and he had to be close with his family and, you know, all of these other things. And, and I knew my mission was here. So whoever it was was just going to have to move here. And that, you know, I mean, the list just went on and on. And it was kind of an impossible man list. I mean, I'm 50. I'm thinking the guy's going to be older. So I don't know that there's a guy out there like that, you know. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm not being pessimistic, but, you know, at that point, I was just like, oh, my word, I just don't want any part of it. When women get to a certain age, you sort of kind of realize that the options are not as great as they (laughs) (laughs) Well, and our standard, you know, it's like, I know what happened last time and I wasn't going to go there. And one of the biggest things on my list was I could have no emotional attachment to the guy at all at first I had to know that God had brought him to me I had to know without a doubt so off I go to Italy in the meantime my husband Alan he lived in Pennsylvania with his family and he at the last minute decided to go with his uh, brother and sister-in-law who were having their 40th wedding anniversary and then I think her sister and her husband went. So there were five of them. So they went off to Italy. We all met up in Rome, you know, at this, you know, the, the, the tour thing. And the tour was 16 days. And, uh, you know, you meet everybody and stuff. But, again, I wasn't there looking for anybody. I was just there to have the experience. And it was amazing, by the way. But um, I didn't have any feelings or emotions for Alan at all. And he immediately, I think the second day, it's, it's amazing. So the second day, he, ha- he showed me a picture that he took of me. And I am looking up, and I, I don't remember where we were in the building, but I am looking up, and everybody's around me, and there is this yellow light that is just beaming all around me. It is the weirdest, oddest thing. So he took that picture, and he said in that moment, his heart completely opened up. Now, Alan's story is he was in an abusive marriage as well, um, verbally, but he um, he decided, he told God, he said, you know, I didn't pick well the first time, so you're going to have to pick the, the next one because I'm not doing anything else. So he waited, and he didn't date. He waited 22 years and didn't date. And, you know, he'd have coffee with someone, not a date date, but just kind of coffee, and then be like, no, uh-uh, that's not it. And uh, and he said he'd all but given up. He said, you know, God told me I'd have I'd no true love, but he said, I had just thought, okay, maybe it's just in heaven, you know. <laughs> so, so he comes to Italy, and God opens his heart, and he's like, what in the world? Well, this tour is 16 days, and we start talking more the last three days, and and we're talking about how God works in our lives. And one of the things God does with me is they'll just be um, random people or strangers I don't know. And I know I need to talk to them. I will never remember what I say or what happens, but it's always a word of encouragement. And I'll just be obedient. And it's what they need. And um, so that's kind of a, a different way God works in my life. And, and he talks to me. But Alan was saying the same thing. And uh, so... Two days before we left, he told me how he felt one evening. He said, my heart opened up, and I can't explain this, and I know I don't want to be creepy. I'm not a weirdo, you know, and he said, I know, you know, this is kind of weird, and I looked at him, and I said, yeah, I don't feel that, so, and I'm not looking, so if you want to be my friend, that's fine, but if you want anything else, you might as well forget it, 
and I was really pretty blunt, but I think I was, you know, kind of freaked out and a little weird and a little scared. So I walked away, and then the next day I thought, that was really mean the way I said it. I should just apologize, you know, because he wasn't, you know, he bared his heart. and He was being nice, and I was just kind of being mean. So I looked for him, and we met around the corner, and he said, you know how when God asked you to do things? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, he asked me to do something for you. And I said, okay, let's go down by the pool. And he said, no. He said, I... I, it's too private. And so I'm looking around. It's middle of the afternoon. Everybody's running around. I'm thinking, okay, I think it's safe. So we stepped into my um, hotel room right there. And I said, okay. And he said, all you need to do is sit down and just not say a word. And so I sat on the bed because that's the only place there was to sit. And he went in the bathroom. And I thought, okay, I'm getting creeped out. And right as I was getting ready to stand up and get out, he came around the corner and he had a towel draped over his hands and he had bottles of water. And he and and he said he asked me to wash your feet for you. Yeah. I have never been speechless in my life. And I was. And I remember sitting there going, are you kidding no way. I don't want to do this. And meanwhile, Alan's washing my feet. So I'm having this argument with God <laughs> while he's washing my feet. And I'm just going, there is no way this is happening. And he does. He washes my feet and he blesses me. And I don't remember anything he said. <laughs> I remember, though, Jesus telling me, he said, all your life you have been prepared for the mission I have for you. And it's time for you to help women. And now you're going to have all the love and support you need. Oh, wow. And he looked, and it was the same time as he got done. He looked at me, he goes, are you okay? And I said, yep. He goes, okay. And out the door he went. <laughs> and he said, he went back to his, his room thinking, okay, I'm just waiting for the police to come and arrest me because <laughs> you know she's going to freak out. And I'm sitting in my bed going, what just happened now this is you know when people say is god real i'm like uh in my life i know he is because i wouldn't be alive if he weren't too many things have happened too many times has he saved me too many times has he um reached down and helped me too many times has he proved like our love story that this isn't anything anybody could orchestrate or do no way no way and Alan said, I asked him, I said, have you ever done that? He goes, no, I have never washed anybody's feet. He said, but I know when God asked me to do something, if I obey him, he is faithful. And even after Alan washed my feet, God didn't open up my heart. I didn't feel all gushy for him. You know, I was still freaked out. We left um, Italy friends. But then through some circumstances, we started visiting with email and then started calling and then God started opening my heart. And that's the coolest, coolest thing is Alan needed to, to know that that was me by, by loving me totally and fully. So God met him where he was. And then meanwhile, God meets me where I need it. And it was just like, wow, what an amazing story. So going through all I have, um, and then 
having Alan's love, now I really do know what it means like to have a man who absolutely loves God with all his heart, but also knows what it's it means to love me like I were Christ himself. I mean, that's how he treats me and cherishes me and loves me. And, and it's just been an amazing, amazing time. Um, so how long have you and Alan been together? This March, it will be five years. We'll be married. So, yeah, it's uh, been a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, we, um, I, I actually have a bit of a, a similar story. I'd been through enormous amounts of trauma and rubbish in my life and swore off men forever. And <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I wrote a, an impossible list as well with uh-huh. things that I just, they were never going to materialize, or so I thought. And again, I met my husband and he was just the biggest, best gift of my life and he loves me the same way as your Alan uh, loves you and uh, it completely changes the way you think about love and marriage and life and because of his love I now do what I do um, and get to speak on on radio to uh, all these wonderful listeners and and spread a message of inspiration and empowerment, education and help. And that's simply because the impossible happened for me like it did for you. Yeah. I found a real love. And when you find it after so long of dysfunction and non-loving relationships, mm-hmm. it, it's beautiful every day, isn't it, Yes. Tyler? It it's just an amazing yeah it's amazing blessing like you said um, had I not though gotten myself aware of myself and my health and realizing you know what are my patterns that keep getting in the way and why do I keep making the choices I'm making and and how can God transform my heart so that I am that love joy peace kindness goodness all the time as well because I think we go into this. Sometimes when we are hurt and bruised that we're not acting that kind of person either, you know, out of our hurtness. And so I think it's very important that we are half the relationship and and only we can change us. And so we're in charge of us and our life will not be any different until we make it different. I was going to say, Bella, it sounds like, and it's the same with myself, that I didn't find my husband until I'd done quite a bit of work on myself, number yeah. one, um, and then finding him, I've done substantial amount more work on myself, the way I think, the way I feel, the way I respond, all mm-hmm. those things. Would it be fair to say that that's your experience too, Bella? Absolutely. Absolutely. You want the the best, brightest love in your life and and all that they can, you know, treat you like Christ, then then you need to treat them that way. And and that's a big misconception a lot of times, especially when people are Christians. There's this whole, they're supposed to be perfect or they're already instantly perfect. And we just are not. We're all broken. And the whole walk of faith is walking hand in hand with Jesus and saying, okay, 
transform me into who you are. It's not an abracadabra, and it's he's not our genie. You know, and walking out your faith and being a Christian really means being Christ-like. And if you're going to be a disciple, then do that. If you're going to say, well, I believe in God or I'm a Christian, but you're not going to act like Christ and talk like Christ, then don't say you're a Christian. Because it's really difficult um, when people do that and you have expectations that, yeah, they're going to be kind and good and gentle and you know, and all of those things, and then you realize, oh, wait a minute, their definition and my definition is totally different. And I, and I think that that's another factor that was really important to know, too, is when you're in a relationship, you really need to understand what their definition of love and design is, how they've grown up with that, and, and what they perceive as God's love. And what yours is. I'll give you an example. Um, Alan and I, when we were talking over the phone, and one day um, when we were dating, I was um, excited about some things going on. So I was just kind of rambling and just, you know, 100 miles an hour. And he started laughing. He goes, you are really torqued. And in my mind, (laughs) I'm going, why does he think I'm mad? I'm thinking, that's a weird comment. But instead of reacting, I asked him, I said, this is a funny question maybe, but what does torqued mean to you? And he said, well, wound up like a spring. And then I started laughing because I I said, well, to me, where I come from, torque means you're mad. And then he started laughing. But you see what happened is by asking him that question and getting clarity we had a great laugh, but, you know, that could have turned into a, well, why do you think I'm mad? Well, I don't think you're mad. You know, how we play these games. And I think clarity is an absolute thing that has to happen in your relationship. If you're having um, any disagreement and, the, and a word comes up, stop and ask them for clarity. You know, what does respect mean? What does honor mean? What does um, lying mean? You know. Telling lies is different for everybody. We each have different views and versions of what something means to us. Yeah. My view of respect is, may not be Dallas' view of respect. And and Judy just commented saying, um, are you saying that there's hope for all of us after all? I would say yes. What about you, Dalla? Oh, I am living proof and so are you that... You know, uh, and, and I, that's why I get so excited about my faith and my relationship with Jesus is, I, you know, it's living proof when you can know my whole life story and see, see how that has, has come, that he is so faithful. And yes, I will endure things. Even he said that. He warned us and said, you're going to have some issues down here and it's going to, you know, there's going to be some pain and hurt, but just know I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. And Boy, when you know that and you know who you are in Him, there's just nothing that can stop you because you know you're loved, that you're valued beyond any words, beyond any imperfect human can tell you, that your purpose is to uh, bring honor and glory to Him, and you know you belong to Him. There are no orphans for Him. There is no uh, feeling left out, which I did for the majority of my life, for 50 years of my life. Um, and, and that was difficult in my life. I didn't grow up with grandparents, cousins, uncles, aunts, anybody close to me. 
Uh, I wasn't close to my parents. I wasn't close to my brother. You know, I virtually grew up alone. And so I had no concept of what that really was. I mean, there were people in my life, and God definitely brought, I call them my angel mom and dads, um, in my life off and on and for seasons. But to have that consistently, I haven't had it till Alan. And that's just been an amazing thing to see. Well, there's a little fast running out of time, and I haven't gotten to the questions that I really wanted to ask about them. Uh, and one of those was around strategies for uh, anyone who's listening who might be in a distressive relationship. Do you think you can cover up on, on that in a minute or so? Um, just some of the strategies you would recommend for women in particular and including men, but who are in destructive relationships. What strategies would you recommend for them? Number one, I, I would recommend um, knowing what the signs and types of, of abuse are. You need to understand what these look like and how they look. Um, these are truth and you need to be truthful in your relationship. The second thing I would do is contact a domestic abuse counselor who is experienced in this. Not just a counselor, but one with abuse. Because you need to start looking at what that looks like and, again, your brokenness and how that's playing into it. Um, and if you're in a very um, dangerous situation, I would advise you to call your uh, local area shelter or the domestic abuse hotline. It's free advice. You don't have to do anything. In fact, I recommend you don't act any way different until you get the information you need. You need to be smart about it. You need to be wise about it because the reality is more murders are done in the first, I believe, four weeks after you leave than any other time. So abuse is real and it's complicated, it's difficult, but there are help and you can break free. Very good. Dalla, we're down to the last two minutes and I did promise our listeners that I would give them a brief overview of a brain test that I did recently. Um, it's been wonderful talking to you um, and I will uh, I put your details up in the chat box for our listeners to get in contact with you on Facebook and your website. Um, thank you so much for coming on Radio Tony Della. It's been lovely talking to you and I'm going to quickly give our listeners the results of the brain test that I took last week. And so according to uh, Kerry, my brain is most comfortable with thinking about big pictures, big ideas with minimal details um, and making user-friendly ideas for the future Um, and I'm good at anticipating how people feel. I may overlook data, facts, charts, written schedules, step-by-step approaches, and being specific. I'm not sure why I'm telling you guys this, but anyway, I did promise. Um, My most natural problem-solving strategies are free-flowing brainstorming, intuition, working in a team, and building ideas for others. But I may not be good at observing strict procedures or implementing strict aspects. Um, and the other thing, uh, these are just tiny bits of that whole brain thing that uh, Kerry tested, we did with Kerry. Um, I also have 
uh, an ability to see hidden possibilities, future implications, and decisions that affect others. But I may not be good at a conservative approach or garnering all the facts and figures. So that's my HBDI test in one minute flat. We will be exploring more of that with Kerry in future shows. Um, we are out of time and next week um, will be Halloween public holiday. So you will have a pre-record listening to the delightful Donnelly Perfect and her amazing story of trauma to triumph. Um, thank you all for listening to us today. Dara, if you'd like to stay on the line for just a little tick after the show finishes, I'd love to catch up with you. Um, thank you, everyone, for your questions and your comments today. It's been wonderful having you on Radio Tony this week, and I'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye for now. Radio Tony, your safe space for tough conversations. Exposing secrets and talking about trauma and recovery. Radio Tony, a platform for the unheard. Radio Tony. With Tony Lontis, author of Resilience, memoir of a broken little girl discovering a woman of strength and beauty. Radio Radio Tony. Available now on Amazon.com and in all good bookstores. Radio Tony. Back next Thursday from 7pm Eastern Standard Time, live from the Gold Coast, Australia. Mom.